We have been looking through from Isaiah chapter 40, and we will ultimately end up in Isaiah 55. Uh, So each chunk has had to be quite uh, large, but I hope actually we've got, got a big sense of the message, even if we haven't been able to dwell too much on individual verses. And as Peter said, we've got a very large chunk to look at from uh, verse 18 of chapter 42 to um, uh, verse 23 of chapter 44 this morning. I want to see how it end, how it begins and then how it ends. And then in the sermon, we'll see how it gets there from the beginning to the end. Verse 18 then of Isaiah 42. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open but you hear nothing. And then to turn with me to chapter 44, verse 23. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, these are words written in far-off times in uh, a culture that we uh, know very little about, Lord, in uh, a situation which is uh, foreign and strange to us. And yet, Lord, there were words written to people like us and words written from you who are the same yesterday, today and forever. So, Lord, we uh, dare to believe that what you told your people thousands of years ago is still a message we need to hear today. Open our hearts, we pray. Clear our minds. Strengthen our wills to follow you. And let our study of your word be something which changes us eternally. For your glory's sake. Amen. morning I want to talk to you about failure. My observation is that a sense of failure and uh, possibly even worse a fear of failure is one of the great powers that rules human personalities. Children are, are sometimes dominated by a sense of failure at a very young age. Some parents push their children so hard that the child senses always that there are constant underlying waves of dissatisfaction towards them. Now, when I was a, a student at Cambridge, I was, I was frankly amazed at the high proportion of these, these intellectual high flyers who felt that they'd failed. Far, far more than my uh, ordinary friends at my comprehensive school that I came from. And I realized that actually they had been pushed so relentlessly by their parents 
but they sensed they would never live up to their parents' expectations. Fear of failure, or, or, or sometimes a sense of actual failure that, that, that uh, can be there in the back of most people's minds, I think. Will my marriage succeed? Am I responsible for the weaknesses of my marriage? Am I responsible for the collapse of my marriage? Will I succeed in my career? What do I have to do to ensure that I will succeed and maintain my my self-esteem? Why have I not done quite as well as I thought I might have? Why am I not the person that I wish I was? You know, it's astonishing, I think, how many people in the back of their minds, from time to time at least, think, I've failed. And sometimes in order to to reduce that that sense of failure, we play games with one another and with ourselves. In fact, um, uh, there's a psychological discipline called transactional analysis that actually suggests that it's it's a lack of what they call okayness in people, which drives the complex and often destructive relationships which so often plagues people. Transactional analysis says that actually we need to get to the point where we can say, I'm okay, you're okay. Title of a book, actually. Then our lives will be totally free. Well, that that analysis, I think, sometimes has a lot to be said for it, but it does, in the end, have an Achilles heel that I want us to think about this morning. It assumes that a sense of failure is false and pathological. It assumes that the perfectly balanced person is someone who simply accepts their own weaknesses and never judges themselves uh, uh, with any criticism. As one observer has put it, transactional analysis bluntly asserts that man is ultimately okay, he only feels not okay. And I'm not convinced of that at all. Certainly there are lots of people, like my my intellectual friends, who live with an inappropriate sense of failure that that dogs them. But I'm afraid we have to face it. It is an endemic condition of mankind that we fail. We fail corporately. We fail individually. What we need, you see, is not some artificial panacea which convinces us that our our nagging feelings of inadequacy are just an illusion. What we really need is the assurance that our inadequacies will not, in the end, be determinative for our future. Now, I think it would be difficult to find a people with a deeper sense of failure than the Jews in exile in Babylon, whom Isaiah addresses in this passage. They had failed as a whole society, you see. Isaiah, in chapters 1 to 39 of his prophecy, had warned them that their sin would lead to God rejecting them. And sure enough, it had happened. From being perhaps the most privileged nation on earth, they were reduced to being amongst the most humiliated nations. They had no land, they had no temple, they had no wealth, and it seemed even they had no God. 
And it's into that situation, that situation of failure that Isaiah speaks in chapters 40 and onwards. God speaks to the people in exile, in the midst of their failure, whilst their faith was flagging. And in chapters 40 40 and into 41, if you were here, you will remember, he says, I am the Lord of the whole universe. You are my chosen servant. Do you really think that I could have deserted you? If I am in control of absolutely everything, of the whole world and everything that happens in it, could I really give you up? It is not possible, he said. Then in the second half of chapter 41, God begins to, 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 to deride all false forms of security that claim to be able to predict the future. Do you remember that? laughing them out of court. But then, he says at the beginning of chapter 42, here is a servant, a person in whose hands the future is absolutely secure. This time he is a faithful servant. He is upheld by God, quietly and humbly, in an unstoppable way, says uh, God, he is going to bring justice to the nation. He is going to, to, to free captives from, the prison, from prison and he's going to give sight to the blind. And in chapter 42, it's not clear who this servant is. Now, could it be Israel? You see, up to that point, always the servant had been the nation as a whole of Israel. Could this faithful servant then, at the beginning of chapter 42, be, in fact, a reformed people of God, people of God who by their own own spiritual maturity that they had gained would unstoppably bring justice to all the nations? Could it be that? In the second half of 42, where we've got to for today, Isaiah puts another piece in this jigsaw. He gives an answer to that question. Very emphatically, his answer is no. How could Israel give sight to the blind when they themselves are blind? Verse 19. Who is blind like my servant, deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? This passage is going to deal with failure. Failure actually on two levels. First of all, from 42.18 to 43.21, it is going to deal with corporate failure, the failure of the people of God as a whole and what what, what has happened to them. It specifically, of course, applies to Israel, but in principle it applies, as I hope we'll see, to the people of God in every age. He's going to deal with it in four steps. I've uh, put it up on the um, overhead so that you can see in such a big and complex passage where we're going to be uh, going. You have that as a a point of reference. There are four (laughs) steps. First of all, God says very plainly, you have failed. Then he says, I intend to redeem you. Then he says, there's no other power that can do that. And then he reaffirms, I will redeem you. And then he goes on and he deals, in fact, from 43.22 to 44.22 with um, 
in fact, a much more personal failure of individuals in their hearts. And he goes through exactly the same four logical steps. He, ha- he says, you have failed. I intend to redeem you. There is nothing else in the whole universe that can minister to your hearts in the way that I can. I will redeem you. That's where we're going then. That's what, how Isaiah deals with the failed servant that he is looking at as they languish in exile. First of all then, God says to his people in every age, we have to face it, you have failed. He says, your faculties do not work. Hear you deaf, look you blind. Who is blind like my servant and deaf like the messengers I send? Who is blind like the one uh, committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. Israel and every other body of believers through history can look back and say there are, that, that there are lessons to learn from history. But do we learn them? Most especially, Israel says Isaiah had been given the law, which promised a glorious future for the people. But here they are, he says, in exile. Verse 21, it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. And did they listen to that clear lesson of history that God had given them again and again? Did they learn from it? Verse 23, which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. As the philosopher Hegel said, what history teaches us is this, that people have never learned anything from history. Or as uh, the modern poet Steve Turner has written, history repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. And that is as true in churches today as it was in Israel. Look at the history of a particular congregation. Look at the broader pages of church history and you will see the mistakes of today are no more than the mistakes of yesterday dressed up in modern dress. Because we never learn from history, says God, We fail. So what's the outcome of that? What's going to be the outcome uh, for for this failed people who have refused to to learn? Isaiah's got a surprise for us. God says, I intend to deliver my people anyway. But he says, it's as good as done, 43 verse 1. Now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He will make his people, he says, 
utterly indestructible, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. He will bring Israel home from their exile. Verse 5, do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bring your children from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isn't it reminiscent of uh, what Jesus said in the New Testament? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Why? Is that because of the, the marvelous competence and godliness of Christians down through the ages? Not on your nelly. If you think that, you've not been in the church for very long. He will build his church because he created his people for his glory and their failure will not stop him achieving that purpose. But you know there is another problem for the people of God that, that always afflicts God's people when they start to sense their failure. Their first reflex is always to turn away from God, to turn anywhere but to God for help. It's logical, really, you see. You start to feel that there are powers out there greater than God. After all, how could things be going so badly wrong? And we cast around looking for what great power it is that we can latch onto for our help. For, for In Isaiah's day, it was the gods and the idols of Babylon. After all, hadn't they defeated uh, uh, Israel? Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know Isaiah has just repeatedly ridiculed those idols. Several times he's, uh, he's had a go at them. But he's going to have a go twice more today, and this is the first time. First, he says, there is no other help. Verse 8, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf, deaf and blind again. But this time he's not talking about the servant who is deaf and blind. Now he's talking about their, their carved idols and anything else that the nations in general might put their confidence in. You see that from verse 9. All the nations gather together, all the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. Last, last week we saw how all false gods and, and false ideologies, no, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, they, uh, they fail in predicting the future. And yet, even the people of God tend to cling to them. Aligning with the devil says actually that he thinks the most dangerous idol for the modern church is management techniques. 
And he says they are dangerous partly because they are apparently so successful, just as the Babylonian idols seem to be on the surface. We look around us and we see successful corporations out there and we are tempted. How did they do it? We see churches that have adopted management techniques as their core ideology and by and large, they are big, especially if their chief executive pastor is competent. But they are hollow. Almost without our noticing it, in fact, they are centers of idolatry. Now, he points out that one, one branch of the church, church growth movement says very clearly, the first rule for church growth is that a church will not outgrow its parking lot. So Debs is all right. It may be a useful observation, especially for a certain type of church. Is it the first rule? The modern world just bristles with techniques and financial plans and management structures. And, and to be honest, I believe that Christians are free to plunder those, just as the ancient Israelites could plunder the wealth of their defeated opponents. But our tendency is always not just to plunder them, but then to set them up as little idols and worship them. All of them are useful as disciplines under God, and all of them are useless as gods. And God is going to show his raw power, says Isaiah, by opening the eyes of his blind servants and turning his blind servants into witnesses who have seen his power. Do you see that, verse 10? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no saviour. One way or another, God is going to show his power over those false gods. Whilst his people are always tempted by those false gods and false securities, he delights to show that he is far more powerful than that. Than that. To work in such a way that, that shows everybody that nothing but God himself could have done this. Verse 12, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient of days I am here. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? There is no source of power anywhere else but in the sovereign Lord. And he's going to show us that. That's what he says. And then he goes on to reaffirm, I not only intend to rescue you, I will rescue you, Israel. Verse 14. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord 
your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. In fact, he gives us a wonderful picture in in this this section. He uh, begins by describing, in verse 16, the great days of the Exodus, that greatest deliverance that they had ever had. Remember, they... uh, The Red Sea was parted and they went through and then the Red Sea closed over Pharaoh's army and and destroyed the greatest superpower of their, their day. describes that. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He says, do, do you remember those great days, Israel? Do you remember how we've told those, the, those great stories down through the ages and remembered them faithfully? Well, forget them. Forget them, he says, verse 18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Of course, he's talking in the immediate context there about the imminent return from from exile in Babylon. But that was not the end of God's new deliverances in the Bible or in history. The, the, The deliverance that Jesus won, remember, over the power of death. He rose from the dead and broke the powers of death so that now Paul can say, death no longer has its sting. Where, O death, is your victory? Jesus has done a greater thing than just bringing a nation back from exile. But incredibly, Jesus said towards the end of his life that through him, through his power, people of faith would do greater things still. Because he foresaw that, in fact, people from every tribe and nation throughout the world would be found glorifying God in heaven. He ministered to just a few, but he foresaw a new work after his death and resurrection, which was greater still. I wonder what do you think then? The God who has spoken these words will be saying to us today. While all spiritually sensitive people know that they fail God again and again. He says, yeah, accept that. That is true. But I am going to build you up. I am going to make you impregnable, he says, so that you can pass through fire and water. I am going to put to shame all your false securities, all your idols. I'm going to do a new thing. So, Maudlin Road, he says, you've got a great heritage. That's great. Your building was a mission station to the lost of East Oxford in the 19th century. Your Sunday school was once filled the whole building. There was once a thriving soup kitchen here. Great evangelists of the past reaped a harvest of soul, souls in this very building. By faith, wonderful things were done. He says, forget them. Just as I only parted the Red Sea once, so everything in your history I did once. And now I'm doing a new thing. 
He says, can't you see the first glimpses of it? Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? What do you think it might be? I just don't know. All I can say is that an authentic work of God will leave us marveling as witnesses of his greatness, despite our failures. Verse 13, yes, from ancient of days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Well, from dealing with people's corporate failure, then, he moves to something much, much more personal. Now he starts to deal with uh, our individual spiritual failure. Verse 22. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. In their hearts they had no sense of dependence on God. They didn't call on him. They had no sense of commitment to him. They did not weary themselves for him. They'd refused to perform the most, most basic religious observances, despite the fact that these observances were not burdensome. Verse 23, you've not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honoured me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor we wearied you with demands of incense. My, my requests have been quite modest, he says. You haven't even done that. In fact, the only burden around here, he says, is the burden that I feel for the sins that you uh, uh, encumber me with. Verse 24, second half. But you've burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offences. Very frank, isn't it? And so true to anyone who really knows their own hearts. There is not one of us here who can say, I am innocent of that. What's God going to do then? What's God going to do then for, 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 to, to we who basically know that is an accurate diagnosis of our hearts? We who would rather trust ourselves than call on God. We would rather mollycoddle ourselves than give every ounce of our energy for God's glory. We who so often can't be bothered with prayer or reading our Bibles or meditations. We who spend an awful lot of time meditating on the sins we might do and an awful lot of energy on engaging, indulging in the sins. What's God going to do to people like us? He's going to forgive us. That's what he's going to do. That's what he says, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. In fact, he says he will, he will also not only forgive us objectively, he will renew our hearts internally so that in fact we are turned to call on God. Verse uh, uh, 3 of chapter 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. 
And what will they be like? One will say to another, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's. will take the name Israel. That's what I'm going to do, he says. I'm going to forgive you and renew you. You who fail me in your hearts. And once again, as he did uh, uh, when he looks at them corporately, he uh, again knows he has to deal with false idols. See, when people sense that they are failing spiritually and morally, they so often seek some concrete reassurance for the, for in, in their hearts. Now, a friend of mine carried around a crystal in her pockets for years because she told me that it was in tune with her spiritual aura. Now, Isaiah actually indulges in perhaps the longest bit of ridicule that he has for idols in verses 12 to 20. Let me read it all to you because uh, it is very powerful. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forces it with the might of his arm but he's not quite strong enough to complete it. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with tools and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, a man in all his glory. Wonderful. But it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak and he let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. But it's man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But Then he also fashions a god and worships it and makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire And over it he prepares his meal and roasts his meat and eats his fill and warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, but I see the fire. And then from the rest he makes a god, his idol, and bows down to it and worships and prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds closed so that they cannot understand. Is that the idol or is that the person who worships the idol? I don't know. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? What a pathetic charade, says Isaiah. Someone I know was talking to an Asian lady who said that uh, when she felt she needed help, she prayed to her duck and she reached into her handbag and out came a little model of duck. I'd laugh if it wasn't so tragic. How can your heart, your deepest needs, your deepest personal sense of failure be ministered to by a piece of wood? And yet professing Christians do it too. 
I am forgiven because of my baptism. Whenever I feel insecure, I go and get out my baptismal certificate and look at it and I'm okay. I am forgiven because I took Holy Communion last week and just as long as the bread and the wine are blessed, I'll be okay. I am forgiven because I believe the creed. I can recite it tonight. I am forgiven because I pray through the rosary every day. If we are Christians here this morning, we are forgiven because God has chosen to make us into new creations. He has, we have been created by God to be his servant people, and so he will never forget us. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. We are forgiven, says Isaiah, because God in heaven looked on us and loved us and resolved that he would remember our sins no more. 22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. We are forgiven so that the living God can call us into a relationship with him and we can know him personally. Return to me for I have redeemed you. I know of nothing more precious, nothing more satisfying, nothing more uplifting to know that despite my failures, which are many, I am forgiven by the living God who loves me, who longs for me, who delights in me even. There is no dead object, no useless ritual, nothing that I would ever swap for knowing the living God because he personally, by his own initiative, deals with my failures and forgives me. So are you prepared to trust that God? That's what we're called to. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Are we, as a church, prepared to acknowledge our weakness, our tendency to fail, and yet look to God himself, who is determined to build his church despite our failures? Are we as individuals prepared to acknowledge our false, uh, our personal failures and look to no false idol, nothing artificial to comfort us, rather than the personal relationship with a God who by his own love and will and concern for us says, I will forgive you. There is no greater joy in and acknowledging our failures before God and hearing him say, I am going to save you. I do forgive you anyway. I am unstoppably determined to display my glory. That's why this passage too ends with a song of joy. Verse 23. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. 
Burst into song, you mountains, you forest and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, we, we want to acknowledge before you that We play lots of games with ourselves to try to deny our sense of failure. Please, Lord, help us to uh, break free of that and to take an honest look at ourselves. Lord, too, we want to uh, ask you that you would reassure us in our hearts, both corporately and personally, of your determined love. Please, Lord, we pray, get glory to yourselves amongst us as a church, not because uh, we are great at all, but because you delight to glorify yourself through your people. And Lord, we pray for each of us personally. We have examined the depths of our hearts and not seen what we like. Reassure us, Lord, that you, the living God, stand alongside us whisper into our ears, I forgive you, now follow me.